This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I chatted with Katrina Hale, the surrogacy counsellor, about the third trimester, which is often hormone-fuelled and raw and emotional and can be challenging and overwhelming. And that's even when surrogacy isn't involved. When surrogacy is involved, it can become even more complex. So Katrina and I had a chat about what to expect for the third trimester, how to plan for the third trimester and how to get through it together. I'm going to hand over now to Katrina. We are talking about the third trimester or the pointy end, as I like to call it. Uh, Katrina, what can we expect in the third trimester of a surrogacy pregnancy? So, yeah, third third trimester uh, can often develop into a bit of a crisis point um, for surrogacy groups. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. That. For for a surrogate, uh, first and second trimester, you know, she is hormonally pregnant. So the biological imperative is keep this baby in me. In the third trimester, at about eight to ten weeks pre-birth, then her body starts to transition into a different hormonal stage, which is prepare yourself to push this baby out. So rather than sort of, you know, at, at all costs, keep this baby in me, it's, you know, get ready to birth and separate. So, so hormonally, her brain starts to prepare for that because it's a pretty big deal giving birth. Um, so her you know, brain starts to change and shut down um, and you know, she starts to prepare herself to give birth. And if we think of that about that in a primal level, what would she be doing? So she would be finding the deepest, darkest cave uh, and you know, going into that and then what does she need from the people around her? She needs to the, the, them to be standing guard at the cave so that she doesn't get eaten by predators or being her support people so she can go into the very, very vulnerable state of, of giving birth. Um, and she just needs to be them doing what they need to do and being where they need to be. Doesn't need to be coming out to check. Are they still, still standing guard? You know, she doesn't need to be giving them instructions of what they need to be doing to support her. She just needs everybody doing what they need to do and being where they need to be so that then she can actually go into the altered state, which is required for a woman to give birth. So, um, you know, even if a woman's heading, you know, get to have it, no, she's going to have a C-section. This is a biological hormonal process, which still takes place. So, but, you know, her body doesn't know that it's going to have a C-section. So her brain still does this same sort of tunnel vision shutdown. So often in groups where a surrogate has been a very, very strong leader, you know, where she's been the one calling the shots and telling everybody what's going on and what's going to happen next, uh, you know, she gets to the point where she loses that capacity to show leadership. You know, she's gone into that tunnel vision. Her brain has actually shut down. Uh, she doesn't actually have the capacity to do it anymore. And then everybody's still looking to her for leadership. You know, going, well, what are we going to do? And what do we need? And can you make this decision? And she just loses it. She feels overwhelmed. She can't cope. You know, she's just like, I just need you to take care of me. So that's often a point where the surrogate's partner uh, needs to step in and liaise with the intended parents and the group of them then needs to 
carry the surrogate across the finish line to, to birth. So that's where you need to sort of have done all that birth planning and all the other planning about what's going to happen around birth before this starts. Uh, once that transition started, once the surrogate's going into that tunnel vision is not the time to start doing that planning because she just doesn't have the capacity uh, to, you know, to deal with any uncertainty. The thing that sort of causes the, the, the relationship breakdowns and, and a, a lot of the sort of the disharmony um, and, and problems in, in the third trimester as well uh, is because for intended parents during the first and second trimester and you know in all the lead up to, to a surrogate pregnancy what their primary role was was supporting their surrogate so they looked after their baby through looking after their surrogate so they were just the support people uh, for their surrogate so they only had to consider one person in the third trimester they start going oh my goodness it's going to happen. We're going to be parents. You know, we're actually going to become parents. So they start thinking about that. So instead of just going, okay, our role is to support our surrogate, they start thinking our role is to be a parent. So we need to prepare ourselves to be a parent. So we need to start thinking about what's going to happen and what we're going to need and what we're going to be doing the moment beyond birth. So, and then all of a sudden, Everything their surrogate is doing, every decision their surrogate is making, everything their surrogate is wanting, suddenly starts to have this massive consequence on what's going to happen post-birth and how it's going to affect them as parents. So, uh, so the reason why there's causes a relationship breakdown, you know, in, between surrogate and intended parents is because the surrogate is there going into that tunnel vision where she's very, very vulnerable. She's anticipating giving birth. Plus, she's anticipating giving birth as a surrogate, which she's probably never done before. Um, but even I've seen with, with mul multiple types of surrogates, it's the same process. Surrogacy has nothing to do with it. Um, so she's actually got into a, a vulnerable state where she just needs support people to care for her uh, unconditionally. And all of a sudden, intended parents start asserting their needs, their parental needs. Uh, are you, going to breastfeed? are you going to express breast milk? Are you going to express colostrum? Uh, are we going to be able to cut the cord? Uh, you know, are we going to be able to hold the baby first? Are you going to want this or not this? Want this? We want that. We need it to happen this way. We need it to happen that way. All this stuff, which is them anticipating their needs post-birth. Poor old surrogate. She's sort of there going, look, you know, there's this sort of little bit that I've, you've got to get me through called birth first, you know, before we get to all those decisions. I cannot take your needs into account i cannot deal you know with you asserting your needs when i've got this massive marathon ahead of me so surrogates can either shut down um, and block their intended parents out you know it's a time where surrogates can actually say to the doctors and hospitals i don't want my intended parents at the birth they're stressing me out too much they're bullying me you know they're manipulating me you know i can't deal with them they're stressing me out or relationships break down or relationships get very fractious or you know surrogates become very emotional because they just can't cope again it's, it's just a physiological thing and also you know intended parents are you know they've got these sort of dual roles uh, on their hands so for intended parents you know they they've just got to hold on tight through this last bit uh you know they're going to become parents uh you know they need to prepare themselves for that um but then they just need to sort of hang on tight and ride the roller coaster as well so and again like i said with uh 
it's a time for a surrogate's partner or support person to sort of then step in and manage that communication uh, with the intended parents to not be sort of passing on messages of the intended parents want to know if, uh, to sort of have enough you know, concept of the situation to, to sort of go, we don't know the answer to that question or you're just going to have to deal with what comes, you know, I'm not asking her that, you know, it's like, uh, you know, to, to understand what's, what's really going on. I think for me also, um, like you say, I was probably the person in the team that was the, the driving force, the leader. And so in that those last few weeks when we were dealing with changing birth plans and uh, checking on the baby and all the extra appointments that you end up doing at the hospital was actually me needing to hand over to my partner and saying, you're the boss now, you're in charge. And a lot of that was just carrying the emotional weight, being there for me, non-judgmentally, being my support person. Um, when we had our own kids, he would have been like the door bitch. He was holding back, you know, the people that are sending messages and knocking on the door. With surrogacy, he was, I guess, being that conduit between me and the intended parents to be very supportive of what I needed and clear communicator. But also that was also when he started turning up to hospital appointments. He hadn't been to any before that. He hadn't really been needed. But as we started talking about birth plans, he was rocking up, at, you know, one of the four in the team, not just a sort of um, uh, an observer from a distance um, and putting in his two cents, which was really important for me as well. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a time often uh, at, at the beginning of surrogacy, uh, you know, there's a, like a lot of communication, you know, the primary sort of relationship connection between surrogate and intended parents. And then surrogate's partner, you know, they'll often say, oh, look, yeah, it's her thing. I'm just the passenger, you know, and, and they don't really engage, you know, at a sort of relationship level with the intended parents. So then when it gets to this point where the surrogate doesn't have the capacity to provide that leadership, or doesn't have the emotional resilience, you know, to sort of deal with what's going on. Um, there's no relationship, there's no communication channel, you know, or connection between surrogate's partner and intended parents. So she's sort of left there out on her own, incapable, you know, of managing the relationship, incapable of making decisions, incapable of showing leadership. She is physiologically incapable. She's about to give birth. You know, uh, with the intended parents looking to her to do all that because that's what she's been so good at doing up until now. And then there's this sort of her partner in the background who is sort of, you know, maybe dealing with her breaking down and whinging and crying or whatever, but then he doesn't have a strong enough or she, you know, doesn't have a, 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 any connection or communication channel with the intended parents. So he's getting her version of events that they are horrible, selfish, demanding, manipulative people that she wished she'd never done this for, as opposed to sort of, like you said, being the door bitch or the guardian or that person who can sort of mediate and, and buffer and sort of balance that situation out to sort of go, it's all okay and, you know, we're going to support this woman who's about to give birth across the finish line and she's allowed to be vulnerable. She's allowed to be emotional. <laughs> she's allowed to be irrational uh, because she's about to give birth and that's what comes with it, you know, as opposed to going, well, she's being unreasonable, she's being selfish, uh, she's being controlling, she's denying us this, she doesn't respect our rights, you know, we need, we need, whatever, whatever. So uh, it, you know, can be a real crisis point. And uh, as you were sort of said when we were talking about this, often that crisis point, often at reaching that absolute crisis point is an indication that birth is coming very, very soon. You know, it's almost like a marker, like, you know, we really are at the pointy end. So it's a real shame 
if at that, that pointy end, that's where it all breaks apart, uh, where, yeah, it, it ends up with intended parents worrying that they're going to be excluded from the birth, worrying if they're being excluded from the birth because the surrogate's changed her mind and she wants to keep the baby. You know, surrogates wanting to have private appointments with the doctors or nurses or midwives, you know, uh, because she's just feeling vulnerable or she's feeling fragile or she's, you know, feeling, you know, the intended parents are being too demanding, wanting to get some strategies to deal with that, but that escalating the anxiety for intended parents because they're thinking, oh my goodness, she's having a private appointment. You know, we're being excluded. She's changed her mind. It triggers those those fears of the surrogate's going to keep her, keep the baby. She's changed her mind at the last minute. We're being pushed out. We need to, you know, assert our, our rights, you know, more, more carefully. Um, you know, because the difference between an intended parent being excluded from an appointment in the first trimester or the second trimester versus the three weeks prior to birth feels very, very different to them. You know, mm. it's like, no, 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 no. This is the, this is the crucial end when I need to be there. You yes. Know, and, you don't, and you're saying, oh, I'm not going to be there. So, and I think yeah, that so. that is the, um, the push-pull that we see where the surrogate, meanwhile, we will be feeling a sort of a nesting instinct to sort of batten down the hatches, only talk to the people that she really needs to. The hormones are kicking in. She's perhaps feeling very vulnerable and not wanting to let anyone into that cocoon. And, of course, that's when the intended parents want to be in the cocoon. They want to be part of that. And it's mm. not because she wants to keep the baby. It's because her hormones are telling her. Her, that she needs to start nesting and and build a wall up around her so that she's protected yeah mm-hmm. so yeah so the groups that i've seen uh you know do it the best are, are intended parents who have the ability to stick to the principle of what all intended parents say they're going to do which is it's all about the surrogate whatever the surrogate needs she has full bodily autonomy we're just going to go with that the ones who have been able to you know, actually follow that through the entire time are the ones who get it, get through it the most gracefully. I mean, I take my hats off to them, uh, you know, for, to, to be able to do that. But they really, it, it requires a lot of trust. They, they just have a lot of trust in their surrogate. They have a lot of trust in themselves, you know, and they're a very strong team, you know, a lot of trust in the team where they can just trust that it's all going to be okay. You know, mm. they're going to end up with the baby in their arms at the end, no matter what. And, that, you know, it's going to happen, but it could happen through a variety of different ways. And they just trust that it's going to turn out okay. So, therefore, they can just set aside, you know, their anxieties and fears and just focus on what their surrogate wants and needs, you know, to be that sort of, you know, unconditional support person. Um, that's the groups, you know, that I find work, works well, where they sort of go, the most important thing, is healthy surrogate and healthy baby and all the rest, you know, will, will turn out okay. So uh, that's really the, the, the best attitude for intended parents to have. But it is very, very hard because they are just about to become a parent. <laughs> um, so, you know, they've got this, you know, their surrogate at her most vulnerable time who needs their most unconditional support while they are also at the, you know, a very, very vulnerable time for themselves about to become parents via surrogacy where they've got to sort of hit the ground running, uh, you know, and, and pick up that ball. So uh, it's almost like there's all of a sudden we've got many, like a higher level of support needs than we have resources to provide for it. I think that's true that also that um, everyone in the team 
needs to recognise that if they're needing support, then sometimes it needs to come from outside of the team. And particularly for intended parents not trying to get their emotional support from their surrogate who's too busy just trying to get through the last months of pregnancy and preparing for the birth, that if they're feeling out of control or anxious about what's coming, then they need to access support away from the surrogate so that they're ready to support her the best they can during those last yeah. weeks. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, if you've got a, a, a midwife or, or you know, or, or a doctor or whoever's going to be part of that birthing team, you know, to sort of talk to them about, well, how's this going to work or what's going to happen or is, is it going to be like this or do it like that as opposed to sort of trying to get that answer from your, from your surrogate, you know, which feels like for her, she's going to have, you know, she's got to make a decision uh, about what she wants when she doesn't know what's going to happen. So there's also a, a sort of a naivety. Uh, you know, most surrogates have given birth before. Um, so therefore, they've got more of an idea that it's not like a Kleenex tissue box ad. So um, that it can be unpredictable, brutal, you know, messy, uh, you know, not sort of, uh, you know, not Enya and candles and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, fluffy kittens and things like that. Um, so, you know, whereas intended parents you know, can often be coming in with a naive fantasy of how birth works. Um, so they've got their due date and, and they're like, you know, well, we want to maximize our uh, parental leave. So, you know, the due date is on the 27th. So we're going to work up until the 26th. That way we can have maximum uh, you know, parental leave. So, you know, we'll rock up on the 26th. You're going to give birth on the 27th because that's your due date and it's all going to be good. That doesn't go so well, you know, for the surrogate because what a surrogate needs you know and again this comes back to it's the surrogate's birth but she knows she's giving birth to the intended parent's baby so what does she want birth to look like she wants birth to end up with the baby in the intended parent's arms not hers so if she is at that pointy end like you said where she's starting to freak out which is that indicator that birth is coming you know in the next couple of weeks um, and she's there going oh my god oh my God, you know, I can feel something's coming, but my intended parents aren't here. What if, what if I go into labor tomorrow? What if they don't get here? What if, what if, what if, what if I give birth and the baby ends up in my arms because they're not here? What am I going to do? So intended parents need to, I think, you know, two weeks, you know, they need to be, uh, within five minutes, you know, of their surrogate, uh, you know, two weeks pre-birth. If they're interstate, that means traveling, coming to stay. Even if they live locally, it means stopping work two weeks pre-birth. You know, it's like, okay, yes, you sacrifice two weeks of your parental leave, but it's an investment in your surrogate's decreased stress levels. Uh, you know, and a stressed out pregnant woman in the, you know, experiencing stress in the two weeks prior to birth, there's a much, much higher risk of her having a birth complication. You missed out on two weeks parental leave, but you bought yourself a traumatic birth. You know? So, uh, so you know, well, what are we going to be doing in, in those two weeks? What you're going to be doing at a bare minimum is being on standby for your surrogate's peace of mind in case she goes into labor. Even if there's a, a plan C section, even if there's an induction date, you still need to be there two weeks before that, just in case. Because when her brain starts going into that trigger of you're going to give birth any moment now, you know, which is preparing her to give birth, and the intended parents aren't there, her brain is saying, 
you could give birth any moment now. It doesn't matter there's a planned C-section. It doesn't matter that there's a, a planned induction state. That's not what her biological systems are telling her. They're going, yes, but what if? You know, so you need to be there for at least two weeks pre-birth for your surrogate's peace of mind. You can also be doing useful stuff like uh, cooking meals, cleaning, looking after kids and things like that, uh, massaging your surrogate's feet, uh, you know, and just all, all that sort of lovely bonding, relaxing, preparing, preparing for birth. You know, spending time together, uh, you, know, you know, again, not to make that two weeks sort of busy, 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 uh, you know, to sort of just have everything sorted, have the cot built, the nursery painted, uh, you know, the shopping done. So that two weeks is just anticipating, you know, what's coming and, and having a relaxed time. For my intended parents, um, I was due in January, so we were on school holidays. So they were taking my kids to the zoo and doing things that I couldn't really do because I was heavy and hot and pregnant and giving me some respite um, so that I could rest and also doing things around the house like, you know, folding laundry and making meals and spending time together, like you say. A lot of that just the bonding stuff that would normally happen between a pregnant person and their partner is happening with the intended parents and and the surrogate and her family. It's, and it can be quite mm. lovely if everyone sort of gives over to that process. It can be quite nice. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like what you said in sort of gives over to that process in terms of it's going to happen. You know, it's like what, what do we know is going to happen? Surrogate's going to give birth and she's gonna, she, wants to, you know, she doesn't want to end up with the baby in her arms. She wants to end up with the baby in your arms. So, you know, uh, is that going to happen uh, with you in the room uh is that going to happen with you out of the room is that going to happen with an emergency c-section is that going to happen uh, you know with in theater you know we don't know because so many different there's so many different pathways but trust it's going to happen mm. it's going to happen and it's going to be okay so uh, again you know it's sort of like nature is in charge even if there's going to be medical intervention nature's still sort of doing this last few weeks uh, in preparing a woman to give birth um, no matter how that birth is going to happen it's preparing her to be focused on releasing and separating you know and, and opening up and giving birth to this baby as opposed to keep this baby in me at all costs mm. I think that's right. And, you know, my reflection on my second child who was born at 42 weeks was that I really needed my partner around for the two weeks in the lead up to that. Just being being here with me, supporting me, uh, looking after our toddler with me, that sort of thing can be really important. So when it's intended parents or surrogate, then I think the same rule applies, really. She's going to need people around her that are supportive and helping her do the things that she can't do. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, it's sort of, oh, surrogate's sort of heavily pregnant you know she's got a toddler uh, you know she can can't even scratch her toes and then oh you know in, in intended parents are sort of still working and just living their normal life you know they're just going to sort of live their normal life and then turn up and pick up the baby it, it sort of feeds into that sort of used and abandoned thing it's like oh great i'll just go and you know suffer while you just sort of fill up a bit of extra leave good for you you know uh, <laughs> don't worry about me just turn up and pick up your baby and i think you're right i think it's an investment in not just the surrogate and her family but also in the child to say we are going to take this time off we're going to um, prepare to have extra time off because that's what we would be doing if one of us was pregnant yeah mm, absolutely absolutely yeah you know the group is pregnant like you know there's a pregnancy which the intended parents are carrying you know mm. through carrying their surrogate so that's right um, yeah so, did you have anything else you wanted to add about the third trimester and how we can plan for a good third trimester every group i talk to 
um, you know, ones who come to me for counselling, ones that I've been having regular counselling with, ones who, you know, I, I don't see for counselling during the third trimester, but I, I talk to them afterwards. Every single group has a third trimester crisis moment or period. Every single one. You know, it is, it's part of surrogacy. You know, it's a very unpleasant part of surrogacy, but it's a very predictable and common part of surrogacy. So I think having someone, you know, and again, you know, don't necessarily leave it to the surrogate to recognise that she's, you know, this is third trimester stuff, um, but having, you know, having an awareness in the group that this is really, really normal. The most common thing I get from surrogates coming to speak to me in the middle of this third trimester crisis is them feeling guilty is them feeling abnormal is them feeling bad is them feeling like a failure because they haven't been able to be the person that they've been able to be the whole way along they've started to turn into a hormonal bitch you know they've started you know they don't want to shut their intended parents out but they cannot cope as an act of desperation they block them out. Then they feel bad about that, but they just feel overwhelmed by it. So they, you know, and they feel like they're the, they, they feel like they're the only person, you know, who's doing this, you know, because all the unicorns and rain, you know, there's no unicorns and rainbows. So I think uh, accepting and recognizing and understanding and embracing that this is actually a milestone in surrogacy. You know, this is part of surrogacy. This is the third trimester. Uh, so that therefore, you know, when it starts happening, it's not going, oh my goodness, you know, this is a disaster. It's like, oh, this is that third trimester stuff. You know, this is what we need to do. It's like surrogate's partner needs to step in and show leadership. Everybody needs to, you know, support the surrogate and not look to her to make decisions and things like that. Intended parents need to trust that it's all going to turn out okay. And, you know, we need to have good planning and organisation and not be sort of going, how about we do that birth plan, you know, two weeks before birth. Mm. So uh, it's just, it's again, it's as common as the fourth trimester. You know? Uh, you know, yeah, every group has, some groups have one incident, which, which is, other groups have weeks and weeks of it. But every single group I've spoken to, every single group has, has had something which is the absolute epitome of this. I think actually the, the advice there really is not only just accessing support, but recognising that every group goes through it. So not feeling alone and isolated if you can um, and for surrogates that is talking to other surrogates that can remember being in the third and fourth trimester and for intended parents talking to other intended parents who have been through it as well and like you say trusting the process that it is those hormones are part of the process to getting the baby out and rolling with it I guess a bit like a roller coaster you just go with it because it's going to be at the end soon enough. Yes, because equally so, again, you know, intended parents I speak to, uh, you know, in, in, in the third trimester, they equally so feel that sense of, you know, being alone, being the only people, being failures, you know, being the people who, who, who are failing their surrogate because they, are, you know, have the best intentions, you know, in what they're doing, you know, and they're possibly, you know, doing what's worked in their relationship with their surrogate, you know, to date, looking to her for leadership or consulting her about every decision that they make or, you know, trying to be collaborative and things like that. And all of a sudden it's blowing up in their face. Every single thing they do blows up in their face. They cannot understand what they're doing wrong. You know, their surrogate has suddenly become completely unpredictable and completely irrational. And even though they are trying their absolute best they're being blocked and excluded and criticized and told they're this that the other 
and they haven't changed. You know, they're just doing, you know, everything with the best of intentions. So again, they feel terrible. You know, so, you know, it's amazing. You know, everybody who comes to me is so reassured by me going, it's okay. This is normal. Yeah, you have no idea how many other people I've spoken to come to me, you know, to me at this point and tell me exactly the same thing. It's it's okay. So I think, yeah, you know, very much that sense of being alone and being a failure and having messed this up from both sides, you know, a, a real shame that at such a point, which can be such a point of, like you said, bonding and beauty and just sort of coming together as a group and as a team to sort of just bumble through or sail through or bounce through, you know, that sort of final stage um, is a real shame if it ends up sort of as a time of, of fracture and schism and anxiety and and uh, having to set boundaries and, and everybody sort of separate from each other rather than coming together. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you would like to find out more information about surrogacy, you can have a look at my website at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can listen to more podcasts on the website or on Apple Podcasts.